welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Uh, thanks, everybody, for being here. I'm grateful to be uh, presenting this podcast on the uh, lands of the Tla'aman, Tlahus, Homoko, and Comox First Nations. Uh, who were uh, actually one nation at one time before uh, colonizers came and separated everyone into different areas. Uh, primarily, I live on the Tlaman First Nation, and uh, uh, in my other hat as a as a, as a volunteer firefighter, I, I had a, a recent opportunity to work with uh, the Tlaman First Nation. Uh, on some some harm reduction um, uh, um, uh, activities, and so we're going to be working together to sort of develop some uh, some poverty and harm reduction um, um, initiatives here on 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 the island where I live, as well as uh, uh, over in uh, Powell River with the Tlaman Nation. So really looking forward to that. So once again, grateful to be here, uh, and uh, thank you uh, for allowing us to be here. Uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Patrick Dwyer to the show today. Uh, Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you as, as well for that acknowledgement. Uh, I should say that I myself am currently um, visiting uh, home, just visiting my parents, and that is taking me into the territory of the Lekwungen and Wixana peoples. So uh, I will also be um uh try to be mindful of uh, all of the harms that uh have been caused um there uh by uh colonization of of this territory wonderful thanks patrick so reason i uh invited uh patrick onto the show today um I've been trying to expand a little bit outside of uh behavior analysis um as far as professionals working in the field and trying to get some different voices uh, that will still, sp- but will still speak largely to a behavior uh, analysis professional audience. So I've been trying to include folks like, uh, you know, users of our services, so autistic individuals, and other folks with uh, different uh, 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 developmental disabilities. Uh, I've also been trying to get, uh, uh, folks from different backgrounds, different, uh, d- different uh, sort of diverse cultures to sort of get those perspectives. Uh, but I'm also st- now st- starting to kind of dive into more kind of autism research in particular, um, uh, and, and especially if I can find uh, uh, autistic, autistic researchers that research in the area of autism, because I think, um, uh, you know, I think that's a, a, a much needed perspective and, uh, and for a bunch of reasons. And Patrick is really the, the ideal guest in a lot of ways um, as he kind of, uh, you know, although my goal is not to check boxes, he certainly checks them all, um, uh, um, you know, as a, an autistic individual himself, but also a researcher, um, a, a PhD candidate uh, who is studying a lot of different areas uh, as, as it relates to autism and a lot of specific areas that uh, I think are really, really important to, uh, to behavior analysts. And as we kind of get into this conversation, there's been a real call for the kind of research Patrick is doing. And so it, it's really timely, but I won't, I won't give away too many secrets. I'll let Patrick do all that work. 
Um, so, Patrick, why don't you just tell us a, a little bit about yourself in terms of, um, you know, uh, what you're studying and kind of how you got interested in kind of studying that and, uh, and kind, of, kind of your journey from um, sort of into academics to now. For sure, for sure. So, uh, yeah, thank you for that uh, very kind introduction. And uh, yes, I uh, very early on knew that I wanted to study um, in some kind of academic setting, um, probably. Um, and I also wanted to do something related to autism because I could see that the autistic community that I'm part of is uh, so marginalized in such distress. So it's fairly natural to combine those two. I'm particularly interested, I will say, in you know, sensory experiences and attention and really uh, seeing the world um, from neurodivergent people's points of view and you know how that can be different than the way the neurotypical person would see and process the world. That is, is sort of my core um, interest. But uh, as Ben's saying, I have you know, all these uh, other other interests as well. Um, I am very interested in uh, many things, including understanding uh, the neurodiversity movement and what neurodiversity advocates want. Uh, I'm very interested in you know increasing autistic involvement in research, actually, um, and generally making post-secondary institutions more inclusive and welcoming for neurodivergent people. Um, and although I am not a professional or clinician or anything like that, those are not boxes that uh, I tick. Um, I am purely a, uh, you know, experimental and um, uh, descriptive um, researcher. Um, I am interested in um, the sort of social validity of interventions and, uh, you know, whether interventions are uh, acceptable and helpful to people in the community, what community perspectives are on these things. So uh, despite my lack of any you know, professional or clinical credentials, I have been dabbling in that area with lots of great collaborators who uh, share, you know, my my values and my belief that you know the neurodiversity movement uh, and neurodiversity advocacy needs to inform the way that uh, we do our interventions and providing support to people. That's great, Patrick. And where where are you currently studying right now? Right. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. Hmm. Um, so I am based at the University of California, Davis. Um, like I said, I'm just visiting my parents right now in, in Victoria, um, where I'm from originally. But uh, Davis has the uh, Mind Institute, which is a major center for uh, autism research. Yes, of course. Yes, I was going to reflect on that as well. The Mind Institute is definitely really well known, uh, I think, internationally in the autism field. And so it's a, it's a great spot to be doing this work. Um, in terms of we're we're gonna we're gonna get into the social validity piece a little later, uh, uh, but I think it would be interesting maybe first off to uh, talk about you know neurodiversity. Um, it's such a broad term um, and such a 
highly debated term, I think, uh, you know, uh, maybe a, maybe in some levels, even controversial, depending on who you're talking to. Oh, definitely uh, controversial. Yes, I, you're absolutely right about that. And, and so and so and and and, and uh, I will ask, why is that uh, soon? And or you may or, or may, you may even kind of get into that as you can answer these questions. But, you know, I, I think there's been a couple of terms that have been really floating around for quite a bit uh quite a while now um uh more so i know neuro, i know neurodiversity was coined in 98 by singer but mm-hmm. but you know I, I know at least myself i hadn't heard the term until maybe just three or four years ago um and uh and certainly since um since the advent of uh the uh, george floyd murder the pandemic um sort of all these sort of environmental events occurring uh, the George Floyd mur- murder really, um, uh, um, of course, you know, opened up uh, s- uh, some really important discussions in terms of, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and things like that. But I think it also, and in conjunction with the pandemic and everyone being home on their computers, it also opened up the door to sort of a, a lot of other social justice movements, including the neurodiversity movement. And I think it's gotten a lot more play at least online in the last couple of years. Uh, and But with that, and particularly in our field of behavior analysis, where, uh, you know, and we'll, we'll touch on this a little later too, we've, we, you know, we, we've definitely got some controversy ourselves in our field. ABA in itself is a controversy, I believe. Um, and uh, in that, some folks who are trying to sort of do better, I guess, um, are, are are using what they're calling neurodiversity affirming practices, whatever that might mean. Um, and, and I think really that in, at its core, I think a lot of folks, particularly folks like myself and folks that are in this field, don't really know what neurodiversity even is um, or even means. And uh, Patrick's got a, a couple of, really great papers on this which we'll share in the show notes show notes that kind of go into this in quite a bit of detail uh but essentially it looks like you kind of at least in one of the papers uh you kind of break down the definition of neurodiversity into sort of three kind of options journeys you could sort of take one which i've heard before the idea that you know we're all neurodiverse. Everyone is neurodiverse because nobody is the same. You know, nobody's brain is the same. Everyone's brain is, you know, different. Uh, you know, we talk about one person with autism being one person with autism, but really one person is one person. Um, and so, you know, the idea that sort of everyone is neurodiverse is an interesting one, but I don't know that it helps so much for, you know, any of the arguments that and any of the reasons for bringing this term into play. If we all become neurodiverse, then we got nothing to do. All our problems are solved. So there's a couple other definitions or or sort of maybe journeys toward definitions uh, that that you kind of outlined. And I wouldn't mind kind of talking about what those are. Summarize somewhat. I don't, I'm not looking for you to read those papers to me. So. Yeah, I can, I can definitely talk about this because it's, you're right. Very confusing terminology. As you say, it was Judy Stinger who coined this this term um, two and a half decades ago now and put that 
um, in a thesis, and it was also released into um, the news media by Harvey Bloom. Um, but it was only a few sentences in each source and really ambiguous as to what exactly is meant by, by this idea. So it's really something that people have you know, taken and run with advocates in the community who are trying to to use it and, and make it their own. And so there's not necessarily even a clear way we can say that there is one agreed upon meaning of neurodiversity, um, but there are definitely ways in which advocates sort of converge on particular meanings and understandings of the term. And there's definitely a lot of misunderstandings um, out there um, which I will say more about in just a little bit, but, um, yeah, as, as you're saying, um, there is that sort of general sense of, you know, how neurodiversity, you know, maybe just, you know, means everyone, we're all neurodiverse. Uh, and then there's also the term neurodivergent that would be describing somebody who is not neurotypical, somebody who's experiencing disability challenges, barriers as a result of atypical you know, minds, brain, behavior. Um, mm -hmm. Those are, are just descriptive terms. Um, and, um, you know, various people, Nick Walker has been a very, very good at this, um, have been trying to, you know, break up the descriptive definitions and separate them from prescriptive ones because, um, definitely, I think it's the prescriptive ones that are the most important. Um, the neurodiversity movement, the neurodiversity approaches, also called neurodiversity perspectives, paradigms, frameworks, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but um, the, these, these prescriptive uh, approaches, they're telling us how we should be doing things, um, that we shouldn't be saying that people are deficient or, or broken, that we should be accepting people as they are and not leaping to assumptions, that we shouldn't be ignoring the role that the way that society is organized um, has in disabling people. I mean, for sure, there are, are characteristics of neurodivergent people um, themselves that can sometimes be uh, really problematic in most environments that are going to lead to barriers in most environments. Um, and I've been doing some, some research about what neurodiversity advocates think, and I can say it looks like neurodiversity advocates understand this and recognize mm. that, yeah, there are times when we need to work on teaching skills um, and doing things to change the neurodivergent person. There are co-occurring medical conditions that we need to approach from a cure model like epilepsy and that sort of thing. Neurodiversity advocates understand this. Um, but at the same time, we don't think that that should be the default, which should not be that the neurodivergent person is always needing to change, to be flexible, to accommodate inflexible neurotypical institutions and systems that, you know, the world needs to be more accepting of us. There's a lot of nuance in there, a lot of disagreement within there, but that's sort of the core of it. And there's a couple of major misunderstandings of it, I would say. Hmm. Um, on the one hand, you can have people who go um, for a, a version of neurodiversity that is actually stronger and more radical than what most advocates think. Um, so a lot of people will say the neurodiversity advocates 
um, believe that, um, you know, autism and neurodivergence are always inherently good and problems are only from society. Um, and that, you know, that, that, or, or that we even deny the idea that autism is a disability at all. Um, and that, mm. that's not true. Um, we're very aware, um, that autistic and neurodivergent people are disabled, that we face challenges. Um, we're aware of the diversity within autism. Not all neurodiversity advocates out in the community might be exposed to that full diversity on a daily basis, to be sure. Um, but certainly, you know, there's an active feeling within the neurodiversity movement that we know that autism is heterogeneous and that some people face more disabling challenges than others. But we don't want to abandon those people and throw them under the bus and say that it's okay to discriminate against them and mm -hmm. um to ignore the way that society is causing problems for them just because they need even greater supports in most contexts. Um, in fact, there are probably all the more reasons why we want to pay attention to the ways that society is discriminating against those people who are all the more vulnerable to that kind of discrimination, unfortunately, mm -hmm. in the world that we live in. Um, so neurodiversity advocates, I think, are a lot more practical than we're sometimes made out to be. Um, and all these people who say that we uh, don't recognize disability as a real thing or that we operate under a social model of disability that focuses solely on society, that's oversimplified. You know, there's a lot of different ways of understanding the social model. And I think in general, we just think that we need to pay a lot more attention to society than we have been. Um, the other danger, though, is that we develop an excessively a uh, simple idea of what neurodiversity is, neurodiversity light. There's a lot of concern from neurodiversity advocates that some people doing autism intervention and support, unfortunately, are kind of appropriating the language of neurodiversity almost and just sort of saying, oh, yeah, we're here to do neurodiversity stuff because that's a term that sounds like it's a, a fun a fun word. It doesn't sound, <laughs> you know, super threatening. It sounds yep. like a good way of marketing. And that's not what neurodiversity is. It does require us to really examine the way that we are thinking about things, the way that we're treating people, the way that we understand the world. It's not a marketing scheme. So both of those dangers, I think, are very much out there in terms of the neurodiversity movement being misunderstood. Oh, that's a great, great, great response. A couple things I wanted to kind of touch on in there. Um, a lot of this discussion, and and it's so true that that uh, that I think folks are are are, are you know, kind of using this term without understanding it. the the uh, The idea of the the medical model versus the social model. Um, first, kind of a two part question. I'm wondering if you could just for for folks that might not know what these are, just kind of describe them a little bit. But then two. Something that I've seen a lot lately, and these are folks, again, um, colleagues um, uh, um, um, that, uh, that are using, again, that sort of neurodiversity affirming practice sort of terminology, are also the same folks that are really saying medical model, you got to go, social model only, that's the way to do it, that's the, that's the kind way, that's the more dignified, respectful way of, of approaching things. Uh, but it really sounds like, from what you're saying and from what I've been reading, um, you know, that really neurodiversity kind of kind of falls in the middle um, in, in some ways. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could just maybe first 
explain just briefly what the two difference between the two models are, and then kind of you know, at least from your from your work, where where we're really at in there. Absolutely, absolutely, it's a great question. Uh, so. The medical model, that's a very traditional approach to disability, to neurodivergence, or, or even anything else that is seen as, as deviant. I mean, historically, you can see this being used to target other marginalized and oppressed groups, like, for example, on the basis of race. Uh, basically, it says that, okay, there's somebody who has something wrong with them. Um, and so our solution is to define them as as pathological, they are they are broken, um, and then uh, if we have any motivation to do so, um, if we care about these people at all, which isn't always the case, but you know hopefully is, um, mm. then we try and medically cure that. We try and make them you know like normal people who are are healthy and well and everything. Mm. And you know we can definitely see that a lot of autism intervention is tended to follow this pattern. It's about making people's behavior more typical, uh, you know, perfect example being um, suppression of stimming behaviors, um, which has been all too common um, historically and unfortunately still today um, in many cases. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a model that has been viewed by many different sorts of disabled advocates as being very unhelpful. Um, because, you know, it's it's derogatory, it's saying that there's something inherently wrong with who we are, it can really damage, you know, identity and self-esteem, and it may not even be practical, you know, um, it may not be possible for people to transform themselves into neurotypicals and abled people. If they could, you know, maybe they would have done so already. Um, and it, the attempt to do so could be causing more harm by sort of denying people's authentic selves or subjecting them to sort of compliance-based treatments. So people, um, it was originally physically disabled advocates who were unhappy with perpetual attempts to, you know, fix their bodies as opposed to providing infrastructure that was accessible, who developed mm. this idea of a social model of disability where okay, yeah, there are things that make us different uh, from abled people, but those don't cause disability in and of themselves. It's society's fault. It's only if society is not accessible and inclusive that we have disability. Mm. But as you say, there's nuance. You know, this is kind of a false dichotomy. It doesn't have to be all society and it doesn't have to be all a problem within the individual. Um, and so a lot of people have been moving towards more nuanced um, middle ground sorts of things. Um, so that could mean developing an explicit third sort of model. Um, I usually say this so that I'm being clear with my, my language, um, some kind of interactionist models, a social ecological model, a social relational model, a holistic model. There's many different terms for it, but basically saying that, okay, disability challenges and barriers, they arise because of some kind of mismatch between the person and their environment. And we need to spend a lot more time looking at the environment and its contribution to that mismatch. Um, but the person's own characteristics also can play a role. Um, but there's also 
it can get even more confusing because there have been calls within the social model to sort of change the meaning of the social model and make it more like what I just said, make it more like this sort of uh, person environment fit thing where the actual characteristics of the disabled individual are considered and part of that, that model. Um, so a lot of the time when people are saying they support a social model, um, they may actually have in mind that they just want us to focus more on society, not only on society. There's also people who will say, okay, well, I like the social model, but it doesn't work for everything. Like I was saying earlier, the example of epilepsy, um, people might want to apply a medical model when it comes to epilepsy. Hmm. But we actually see in our, our own data, a study that we are working on now, not published, um, that people are saying, oh yeah, well, we will, it would be great if we could cure epilepsy, but also it would be great if the world could be more supportive of people with epilepsy. So it may not be the case that we have to pick one model or the other. You know, we can also work on combining them, synthesizing them, and picking the best aspects of each without all of the problematic um, things that, that come with it. So we can try and provide interventions that work on um, you know, teaching people skills or curing medical problems without, you know, all of the damaging, harmful pathology messages and telling people there are things that are wrong with them, for example. Um, and we can still pay attention to social barriers as we're doing that. So it's really complicated and really nuanced. And the debate that exists right now um, is often people talking past each other because they aren't listening deeply enough to really figure out what other people actually have in mind. And so they think that other people have ideas that are a lot more simplistic than they really are. Really cool. Um, thinking also kind of about a couple pieces here. So in terms of the medical model, it seems to me, as I sort of listen and follow along with some of these conversations, that it's the folks like yourself. And when I say like yourself, I mean the folks who are, are and, and maybe not the right term, like yourself, but the folks who are able to communicate, um, sure. able to speak fluently, probably don't have a, an intellectual disability um, certainly have lots of other characteristics of autism that, that gave them the diagnosis. It seems like it's sort of, and it's not all of them by any means, but it seems like it's a group of folks sort of from that population that are really pushing for this kind of, you know, social model sort of, um, uh, approach more so than the medical model. But then on the other side of the coin, we've got these folks who, and I don't know if, these terms are, you know, appropriate or accurate. Um, uh, you know, I haven't taken a deep dive into sort of the autism side of the research on this, but folks that essentially we label as having more severe or profound autism, you sure. know, whatever, whatever that exactly means, but it generally tends to be connected to a lot more, more of a speech delay probably some sort of um, intellectual disability, but not always. Yeah. Um, um, and, and, and certainly a lot of other kind of, essentially, 
a much higher increased need for support right. in order in order to be safe uh, in the community or to be safe at home. Yes. And those folks in general, in general, I think there's a few out there now, but in general, those folks aren't really advocating for themselves. Uh, the ones that may be advocating for themselves, and I'm going to be, I'm going to be uh, uh, speaking on some controversial issues here in my field as well. I, I think it's fair to say that there are. Sorry to break in there. I think it yeah. is fair to say that there are people who are definitely advocating for themselves. I've met some of them. You know, there's people who have mm. graduated from things like FC and RPM to communicating completely independently without supports. Um, right. So it's a very controversial area, but um, there are clearly some brilliant people out there who are able to advocate for themselves using um, some of these alternative forms of communication and communicate quite fluently their own thoughts and ideas whether that is a large segment of the non-speaking autistic population. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think anybody has a very good idea as to exactly how many of these people there are. Um, but yeah, I, I think right, that's who right. you had in mind, right? Yes, exactly. You, took, you, you literally took the words out of my mouth for that one. Well, maybe not literally, but uh, metaphorically. Uh, but because, um, um, and, that, and that area, which... I don't necessarily want to dive into too much today, but the idea of uh, sort of facilitated communication and RPM and whatnot are, are, are methods that that folks in the ABA field um, uh, and other fields believe to be debunked. Um, uh, and and I have and I I can't really speak intelligently about those areas uh, because I think there's but but as I understand it and from talking to some other colleagues, um, you know it may be that maybe that's the, the related more to study design and subject selection and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's um, a very complicated issue for sure. Um, yeah. I absolutely agree that it's probably not what we want to use our time for today. I'll I'll yeah. just say. That, yeah, as I said, there are people who communicate independently via typing without RPM and FC, right. and um, some of them used RPM and FC to get there, um, right. but they're communicating independently now. Exactly, and I think that that's that's the key point. So, with that in in mind, it does seem like, and I and so I'm not sure what those folks then, the ones that are the non-speakers that are advocating for themselves, are saying about this issue, but it does seem for the, for the folks that aren't able to speak for themselves then it's more families and parents and that sort of thing that are speaking for those or, or speaking, trying to speak on their behalf, whether they <laughs> agree or not, we don't know. Uh, those folks seem to be in a lot of ways geared more towards the medical model. They, they, they want to see this thing cured, you know, um, because of the, the, the increased stress levels for themselves and so on and so forth. A lot of them do anyway. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. And, Some of them and, do for sure. Yeah. And we've seen, you know, and certainly over the years, groups like Dan defeat autism now and others that mm -hmm. are sort of really kind of cure focused, um, uh, um, um, groups. Um, um, that's tricky. It, it, the tricky piece is, is, is we, cause it's, it's the folks that are sort of not in, in that category that are in, in a lot of ways trying to speak for both groups. Um, I think, and, 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 and I think that creates a lot of, a lot of muddiness and a lot of confusion because, yeah. you know, and, and, and I'm not even sure 
what the question is there beyond the idea that there is, um, you know, um, uh, and, and you, you refer to, you refer in one of your papers, you talk a little bit about the, the, this idea of sort of negative value judgments and the, and, 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 and this creation of the national council on severe autism, which I know has gotten, you know, some also controversial. There's a lot Very of controversial stuff today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Thoughts on that? Are you looking for a way to recognize World Autism Month in a meaningful, actionable way? Foundations for Divergent Minds is a nonprofit organization rooted in the belief that all neurodivergent people should be able to thrive in the communities they live, work, and play. We are offering courses to professionals to provide a space to explore neurodiversity through a different lens while staying true to your field. Every course fee directly supports our programs tackling healthcare gaps for autistics of color, designing local community programs, and promoting safety for autistic people. We recognize that the fear of discomfort can be a big deterrent for many people, but that also discomfort is the place where growth comes from. So we created several courses aimed at offering this space to different fields of practice. One for teachers, educators, speech language pathologists, occupational therapists and counselors, and the other for behavior analysts. If you're unsure what steps to take to build a neurodiversity aligned practice, these courses are a great resource and co-instructed by professionals in your field of practice. For the Behavior Analyst course, go to FDM, that's F as in Frank, D as in Donald, M as in Mary, dot training forward slash response. Everyone else can go to FDM dot training forward slash implement. And now for a limited time, you can use the discount code BEHAVIORSPEAKS, all caps, to receive a 10% discount. Hope to see you there. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is medical. Yeah, as, as you say, it's a really tricky and complicated subject, mm -hmm. but as, as exactly as you say, that question of, you know, who speaks for these um, people, you know, um, should we be focusing more effort on trying to maximize the way that they're communicating themselves? Or, you know, are there some people where even that is just not going to be an option? And, you know, I personally would say, yeah, I mean, they're realistically... Um, there are going to be some people from whom, even with the very best support decision making and, you know, all kinds of behavior observation, really trying to get into and empathize with the person and their perspective, you're still going to really struggle to understand um, 
you know, some things about them. Uh, and so that leads to some really tricky questions, you know, mm-hmm. is it um, the, the, the parents, uh, caregivers, as you say, um, are there, you know, um, speaking um, autistic people without intellectual disabilities like myself, you know, are we um, supposed to speak there? Um, what about these, these non-speaking folks who are typing and spelling to communicate in many cases independently? Um, are they the, the natural representatives or does the fact that they have these communication options mean that they're they're different, even though they might have been treated similarly before? Um, it's a really dicey question. And, you know, it can get very complicated because there might be people who have, you know, more language understanding than they've been able to express with the options that are available to them. But then there are clearly other people, I would say, where that's very much not the case. Um, mm-hmm. And it's um, a gigantic mess. Um, and hmm. we can sometimes, I think, over lose sight of, you know, some of the, the middle ground here. Like, for mm-hmm. example, you can have autistic parents of autistic children and, you know, maybe those mm-hmm. autistic um, parents actually have different perspectives than neurotypical parents of uh, children who are otherwise comparable. Um, there's also definitely a lot of, of parents out there who are supporters of the neurodiversity movement, even when they have children who have higher support needs. Um, and I, I think it's very common for people to drift more towards a neurodiversity approach as um, their children get older. Um, it, it is a, a tricky issue because, as you say, there's issues of, okay, well, these negative value judgments, we're using derogatory language to describe these people, that's coloring our views of these people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is that having some harms that we, you know, either is it impacting the people directly or is it impacting our views of the people in a way that is going to negatively impact them somehow? Um, you know, there's definitely stigma and discrimination. Mm. I mean, for example, um, it's very common for people who are quite obviously disabled to be denied healthcare resources um, mm. and could, you know, potentially um, die from treatable medical conditions because other people are prioritized for scarce medical resources. Um, that is something neurodiversity advocates are very much opposed to. Um, and I think um, hopefully most people could agree that that is something that we should oppose, um, that sort of discrimination. Um, of course, we should just make sure that we have medical resources for everybody. That would mm-hmm. be the ideal outcome. But when there is scarcity, we can't discriminate against vulnerable groups. Um, so there, there's some definite issues there. On the other hand, it can get get dicey. Like I've heard sometimes neurodiversity advocates say things like, oh, well, you know, um, everybody's support needs vary, you know, in different contexts and things. And so, you know, really, we're not all that different. And I I don't agree with that. I I think I need to be humble. My support needs are going to be um, much lower than those of some other people, um, no matter what context, you know, it could be my very worst day and I still might need fewer supports than some people would on their very best day. And then that just speaks to the huge diversity and, and heterogeneity that we have within autism. Mm-hmm. So it's not easy um, or straightforward, but I think that, you know, we can find ways of, uh, you know, approaching it more successfully. So, um, for example, um, 
when we're communicating with families uh, of who have a, a young child that's just now being diagnosed um, for the first time, the child is you know, only at preschool age, say, the parents don't know what's going to happen to that child. Um, and of course, they're going to be uh, very anxious and concerned for the future as um, is, is completely understandable because they don't know what's going to happen with their child. Mm-hmm. Who is their child going to be when they grow up? How are they going to function in the world? Are they going to be okay? Are they going to be independent? Are they going to be successful? You know, are they, what, what's going to happen? Um, and I think ha, if we set up, say, opportunities for people to be put in touch with neurodiversity advocates, to be put in touch as well with, uh, you know, not just autistic um folks without intellectual disabilities, but also, you know, people with intellectual disabilities to see that, you know, there are options where people can be, you know, happy and successful in adulthood, um, Mm. successful for them and have good quality of life. um, If provided with the right kind of environments and support, you know, maybe that changes how these parents are then going to be viewing their children. Um, I, I think we need to do a lot more talking to each other, you know, different communities develop different ways of thinking about things, different languages, different concepts. Um, and then when we do interact, you know, we have mutual incomprehension and people use terms that identify themselves as being our opponents. And then that makes it very difficult for us to have uh, a reasonable uh, interaction where we can then find any common ground. You know, I think we need to bring people together. I think we need to have more communication. And, you know, maybe then some of these issues of who speaks um, start to become less important because maybe we get closer to consensus and maybe the insights that autistic advocates um, have um, are, are ones that um, can be accepted more broadly. Um, and maybe also the subset of autistic advocates who, you know, aren't non-speaking spellers who, you know, are um, like me, I I guess, who, you know, are relatively privileged. Um, If there are some of us who don't really understand the lived reality of some autistic people, um, Mm. maybe see things through excessively road-ended glasses, um, Mm. which might even hint at some implicit ableism, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. that too is something that can be corrected um, through dialogue and engagement. Adam, maybe I'm just naively optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I, ho- I hope not. Um, I, I do like, and 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 you kind of touched on sort of the presentation of the diagnosis to a new parent and and that sort of thing. And and, and you've got a great paper which I'll, I'll I'll link in the show notes that really provides some nice, simple kind of recommendations for diagnosticians on, in terms of how to sort of maybe present present and support, uh, you know, new families uh, uh, um, or new, new families of autistic children um, uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in a much more respectful, um, for lack of a better term, la- non-doomsday sort of approach <laughs> yeah. to sort of things. Um, you know, I think, you know, that very first day when they walk into the doctor's office and the doctor starts with, I've got terrible news for you. You know, that's the beginning of the end right there of, you know, and, 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 you know, at the very beginning of the road, you have a really great opportunity to sort of, you know, set folks up for positivity. And so I'll definitely add that in there because I think that's great. There's one line in particular that I just wrote down, you know, uh, and and this isn't necessarily specific to uh, the diagnostician sort of uh, 
perspective, but just any kind of professional, we often, you know, describe, you know, and it goes back to those negative value judgments, I guess we describe, you know, uh, the diagnosis and, 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 and sort of the features there, you know, in a negative way, but there's no point to that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and you say, we, we, can, we can do all the things we need to do without labeling these things so negatively. And, and one line in particular, so it's a, it, you know, when we're talking about sort of teaching, teaching new skills, maybe adaptive skills or something like that, you say, you know, you write it, it's possible to teach the skills without describing the, 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 the individual as deficient. And yeah. Calling them deficient does not change the teaching method. It may actually make it harder to teach because we're setting up people to fail. If we say that we have really low expectations, that we don't think they can do the thing, we know from prior research that makes it less likely that they're going to be able to do the thing. Mm-hmm. If we expect that they'll succeed, that makes it more likely that they'll succeed. So it's at best doing nothing. And at worst, it's actively hindering us from doing what we want to do. I'm not saying that any we need to go around you know, viewing the world through unrealistic rose-tinted glasses and always be speaking in, in euphemisms. Mm-hmm. Really, all I'm saying is let's refrain from unnecessary value judgments that may not even reflect reality. Um, and let's try and use more neutral language. And if in doubt, if there's no obvious neutral thing and we're left between a choice between a negative description of reality and a positive one, well, let's err on the side of going positive. Because if you look at the way we talk about autism right now, it is not objectively true that autism is, for example, a disorder rooted in the person. You know, um, we've done all kinds of studies showing all the things that neurotypical society does that makes it harder for autistic people to function. So, you know, who's disordered? Autistic people? No. Neurotypicals? Yep. No. The relationship between autistic and neurotypical people? Probably. Absolutely. Um, before we kind of dive in a bit to your, your papers on social validity, which I think are going to be really, really important and, and, and valuable to at least the, the behavior analytic audience. Um, I want to just touch briefly on the, not necessarily briefly, but I just want to touch on, uh, the, uh, the, the, the sort of person first identity first language and, and another term that you use which i hadn't heard before that's uh, because i made it up if you're thinking pathology first i am indeed yeah yeah and i think it's a great term and i was wondering if you could sort of uh, well first off start by just describing well describe those three and kind of there seems to, well before you do that i think there seems to be this sort of um from 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 at least my learning history uh when i got into the field and went to do my master's degree and my training, all the language was person first. Right. Um, um, it was all about uh, you know uh, uh, he's he's Billy before he's you know Billy with autism or whatever, uh, and that seemed and that was and, and they were really pushing for that. The identity first language was in some way offensive and so on and so forth. As I got more in and we started hearing more artistic voices and I was able to listen more, I hear a lot of them adamant that it's always identity first always identity first and then every now and then i hear uh you know i don't care you know from individuals call me what you want um and and then sometimes we hear you know sort of similar to sort of the the uh 
the pronouns idea where you just ask someone sort of what their what their preference is what's your preferred identity label i guess in, in some way which is an interesting discussion in its own because you don't ask anyone else what their preferred identity label is you know uh you know I, I don't go up to my 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 new neighbor that i just met and go hi i'm ben oh hi i'm bob oh what's your identity label i mean it's it's not part of the regular conversation really but for some reason it, it's come into this so i'm wondering if you just kind of tell me what what some of your work has 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 has, has sort of shed on the subject yeah so i haven't directly researched this i i have done a bit of unpublished still research looking at people's preferences about other forms of terminology. I, I didn't actually mm. do research on identity first and person first because mm. I was kind of feeling like everybody is arguing about it and me <laughs> uh, adding one more study is not going to change uh, a lot. Sure. But I was sure. asked to you know, write this, this commentary about mm-hmm. a research study where other people had said, okay, um, let's look at how people are using the terminology and we're going to see if using person-first language is a good thing. Problem is that they're, you know, operating within their own approach to understanding language. Like what you were saying when you were entering the field, everybody used person-first. There was no alternative being contemplated. These people, you know, are operating within that sort of framework. And the way that they are defining stigmatizing language um, is that the language they use is okay and other people's language is not. So what all they're finding is, oh, people who use person-first language also use the other kinds of language that we think are okay, which is <laughs> not surprising or interesting, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was saying, okay, let's go back. Um, so back in the olden days, um, people used to go around saying things like, um, you know, um, the severely disabled autistic child that has no Ooh. empathy and cannot form emotional relationships with other people and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and people were using something that seems kind of like identity first language in that we're allowing the disability labels to define the person, but in a very different way from what autistic advocates are saying when we're talking about identity first. Here we're using what I call pathology first language. We're saying, you know, this is who you are and who you are is broken. And it's mm-hmm. understandable that people were unhappy with that. And so person-first language came through as a reaction to that. People were saying, no, 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 no. Well, let's not define people in this this horrible way. We need to separate out the disability and the person, recognize the person first, um, as as you're saying. Um, The problem is that this still reflects a pretty negative attitude towards the disability itself. You know, why can't that Mm. define a person in a positive way? We were doing a territorial acknowledgement earlier um, I wouldn't ever dream of going up to, you know, a, an indigenous person and saying like, hey, um, I have to call you a person with First Nations-ness because I don't want you to be defined by your First Nations-ness. You know, this is, sure. is not something that is a positive about you. And we have to make sure that we recognize you're a person first, despite your First Nations-ness. I mean, that mm-hmm. just sounds... So incredibly condescending and horrible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that is technically what we're saying when we're talking about disability that way. And the fact that we don't even realize it, I think, says something about how ingrained some of the negative views we have about disability are. Mm-hmm. So it was Jim Sinclair um, 
and also advocates from the deaf community and other, mm-hmm, other communities that have said, you know, let's not be, be doing this. Let us reclaim these labels and just call ourselves, you know, autistic people, deaf people, whatever the case may be. ADHD people are also increasingly adopting identity first language. Um, so I use identity first language. Um, I'm, I'm very comfortable with it. It is complicated because um, not everybody likes it. There are some people who prefer person first language. Um, in some cases, that may be that they've encountered identity first language. They don't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, in other cases, which makes it even more complicated, it may be that they're just following what other people around them, like parents, professionals, et cetera, are doing. Maybe they've never heard of identity first language um, and never really had an opportunity to decide whether they like that or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a really complicated area. Um, I do encourage people to use identity first language if you're talking about neurodivergent or autistic or whatever people abstractly. But, you know, it's somebody's identity. And if somebody tells you, I want to be called with person first language or whatever they prefer, then, of course, follow that. It, mm. You know, why, why would we ever impose our views of what somebody's identity should be over their own? Right. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like. Um... Uh, just kind of two other thoughts, and then we'll get into the studies. It seems like, um, I know it doesn't just mean this, but it seems like the term neurodiversity has, for the most part, been kind of co-opted by the autistic community. You know, as to as as in, in a lot of ways to be kind of one in the same. Some of them will, you know, will happily include ADHD or some other things that they also that are also sort of part of their diagnosis. So they might be an individual who's autistic. They also have OCD and they also have anxiety and so on. And so they kind of include all those. And I've heard, I've heard sort of arguments that sort of any sort of, you know, essentially mental illness uh, for lack of a better term, um, you know, anything, anything essentially that was in the DSM could be, you know, lumped into uh, being neurodiverse. And yet, and so I guess, the question isn't so much does neurodiversity include things outside of autism because I think we know it does, um, but what I don't think I see much of is folks who aren't autistic being a part of the neurodiversity movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really important uh, issue that I I did not touch on when you asked me about neurodiversity earlier, and maybe I should have, but we can mm-hmm. definitely talk about it now. Um, so yeah, there was never an intention that neurodiversity would be about, about autism. Um, when, uh, Judy Singer coined the term, uh, it was always, you know, you know, the idea that it is just about the diversity of human cognition and neurology and behavior. And I think by and large, most neurodiversity advocates, um, use it that way. Um, certainly that seems to be what was, uh, you know, true in the data that we were collecting unpublished data from neurodiversity advocates, you know, the majority of people are not limiting, um, neurodivergent to mean autistic, um, you know, neurodiversity, um, and, and neurodivergence uh, are much broader than that. Um, neurodiversity is the diversity of all minds and brains, um, and neurodivergence is any deviation uh, from neurotypical. The um, 
tricky thing is, yeah, it was invented by autistic people, has been primarily used by autistic people, is primarily associated with autistic people. Um, I do think there are people um, who are using neurodiversity, ADHD people, um, you know, including ADHD people who aren't autistic, I think are uh, increasingly um, being drawn to the idea of neurodiversity. I see a lot of that in ADHD world nowadays. Um, there's other people as well. You know, we, um, uh, I was a co-author on a paper talking about, you know, how can we broaden the neurodiversity movement um, mm. and not just be about autism. And, um, mm. you, you know, we had, um, uh, I believe one of the other co-authors on that paper uh, he was certainly involved in our in our discussions, so I assume that he ended up as a co-author. Um, hmm. Is a coming from the stuttering world, hmm. um, there and says he wrote this great paper. You know what um, can stutterers take from the neurodiversity movement type thing. Hmm. Um, so there's there's definitely people out there. There's also you know debates like you know is anxiety depression is that like neurodivergence mm-hmm. or or not mm-hmm. you know should that be within the neurodiversity movement um i don't think anybody I, at least i hope there aren't very many people going around saying like oh you can't be in the neurodiversity movement you know i think mm-hmm. um communities can they may not always be you know if we're looking for an online social community it may not always be one that we feel a sense of, of connection with mm-hmm. but i think that you know the idea is that neurodivergence is supposed to be very inclusive and that anybody who sort of self-identifies mm-hmm. as neurodivergent is welcome to do so mm-hmm. um so yeah it, it, it's come out of the autism world um but uh, it's not supposed to be limited to autism and i hope that um it's something that um will continue to broaden and i mean obviously as an autistic person, I don't want to impose my ideas about how we should do things on any other groups. But if it's something that is useful to other groups, if they feel that they can benefit from it, then I'm always delighted to see other people um, taking these these ideas. It's not appropriation. The whole mm. it's supposed to be open to anybody. No, I, I think that's right. And I mean, I, I have ADHD myself, and uh, I uh, I've been I mull around. From time to time with the you know identifying as neurodiverse sometimes i do sometimes i don't i think part of it is also what's the value in sort of you know identifying there like mm-hmm. i mean beyond you know i mean uh, you know I, I see the movement as being something you know you know around sort of you know uh, you know reduct reduction of barriers you know more universal design you know, these sorts of things kind of coming in place so that we can deal with some of that social model piece um, and, 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 and sort of have, have, you know, supports for these folks, you know, you know, be both ways. And I think that's, that's, that's really important. But if, you know, if I'm an individual, you know, who has, you know, you know, maybe you know, a little bit of anxiety here and there, and I'm not saying, you know, there's folks that have severe anxiety and, and all, all different levels, of course, you know, is there going to be a value for me in joining that movement? You know, may, maybe, maybe not. It's really, it's really kind of hard to know. And so I think that, you know, we, we may see that kind of, kind of, you know, expand over time. I think you're right. Um, one last thing I just wanted to touch on specific to the neurodiversity movement, just because we, we referenced uh, both in our land acknowledgements and a couple t- more times 
uh, indigenous folks. I recently had a, a, a really interesting fellow named Grant Bruno on the podcast. Oh um, yes, yes, I've I've heard of him. Never never met. Um, hopefully, sometime uh, our paths will cross. Yeah, so de- definitely definitely worth a listen. So uh, Grant did most of the talking during that episode. Uh, uh, you know, uh, as 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 he had the knowledge to share. Uh, but Grant's, uh, uh, he's, I believe he's uh, from kind of, he's Plains Cree. Um, uh, he's from, and I, I, I always, always uh, uh, butcher the pronunciation of, of, of the area, Maskowitz or Makowitz, something like that. It's up kind of central Alberta anyway. Um, and uh, he's, uh, he's a parent to um, an autistic boy. And, um, He's been doing a lot of work around um, uh, the the perceptions of uh, Canadian First Nation communities of autism and, and neurodiversity, um, and he's doing some really fantastic um, uh, community participatory research. Um, you know, where he's working with you know healing circles and men's circles and group circles to really get the community sort of you know. Uh, playing a playing a big role in even coming up with the research questions, I think it's it's a it's a great approach and something we're seeing more and more in autism research as well, which I think is really awesome. Uh, but one thing I want in particular that he, he he told me that the way at least his community looks at neurodiversity, first off, his community recognized neurodiversity has recognized neurodiversity for literally thousands of years. Uh, long before Singer came up with the term, they were recognizing, you know, this as, as a concept. And, they, and the, the, in, in, in his um, native language, which it, start, it starts with a P, it's, it's in the show notes of the episode, um, uh, autism is translated to he or she who thinks differently. And that's it. Um, and, and it's just a really nice, there's the, there's, there's no deficit discourse whatsoever. Um, uh, he talks about sort of how the, uh, ceremonies and powwows and whatnot are in many ways, the most inclusive events that exist because everyone, regardless of whatever is, is welcome, you know, at all times and they're all included and all these sorts of things. Um, again, uh, folks can listen to the episode to really get the, the specific details around it. But it's just, it's interesting when you kind of go back to, you know, the original people and, 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 and those perspectives that for so long we, you know, we, we quashed and tried to erase, um, you know, you know, have been wet, whether it be for autism or climate change or whatever, um, you know, they've, they've had the right idea all along. And I thought that's really cool. Yeah. And, you know, there's definitely people looking into that, you know, Stephen Kapp, who's a fellow autistic researcher and collaborated on some of the you know things that I've uh, been mentioning throughout this, uh, has been looking at this sort of thing uh, and published about it um, with a, a totally different Indigenous people, the Navajo. Mm. There's, um, yes. you know, a, a other people doing work on this in, in Australia, I, I think. Um, so, yes. so yeah, I don't have all the details of these things at, um, at my fingertips. And of course, there's such an incredible diversity of indigenous peoples out in the world. And I, as an ignorant, um, uh, settler, um, am very uncomfortable 
with, um, uh, you know, pronouncing upon that because I do not know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mm-hmm. it, it is as very important. Yeah, I'm working on actually getting uh, a researcher and an elder from the Maori uh, communities uh, in in uh, in New Zealand to come on. Oh, cool. uh, who who are who are working in the area of, of uh, autism. Um, in in those communities, so there is some a, a lot. Of, there's some really if folks are just looking, there's some really there's there's not a whole lot of research. There's, there's the studies you mentioned. Um, I know I know Grant said he was able to find maybe twenty studies in North America, sort of uh, related to sort of indigenous folk and autism. But if you go into New Zealand, um, it it really jumps. I think because of maybe I think in part because of sort of their 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 you know. Uh, a couple generations ahead in their reconciliation sort of efforts. And so they've been able to kind of produce some more. Um, I wanted to get into the, the two uh, preprints that you sent me. Uh, and, and I want to thank your, your co-authors for kindly agreeing to allow you to discuss these papers before they got published, because I think they're, uh, and, and we were actually going to, I was ready to postpone the interview until they got published because I think these are, 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 are really key to specifically my uh, my uh, ABA practitioner or listeners. Um, you you do two studies. You have two studies uh, that are in preprint here on um, on on social validity of of autism behavior interventions. Mm-hmm. And just to give some folks, I mean, anyone who's listened to the show or um, or is, is 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 somewhat aware of ABA will know that. Um, in more recent times, and this all connects back to the neurodiversity movement in a lot of ways, which is why I really wanted to kind of dig into that first. Um, there's a lot of neurodiversity advocates and a lot of um, autistic folk um, and others uh, that that have a lot of problems with with our field of a, with the field of ABA uh, for a bunch of different reasons, and everywhere from every form of ABA, regardless of what it is, is 100% absolute abuse to Maybe sort of the other end where, you know, we, ha- we had a really we've had a really poor history. Uh, a lot of folks are doing better. We've still got a long way to go. And we and we definitely have a lot of issues when it comes to sort of, you know, cultural adaptations and and, uh, you know, uh, gender biases and other other and, and, and ableism and, and these other pieces kind of happening in there. Uh, but all along, you know, uh, the the call has been. Um, and for a couple of things, one, certainly more autistic folk involved in researching this and, and Patrick, you're, you're a prime example of that. Um, two, um, 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 I lost my train of thought here. Uh, so having more autistic folks involved in research, um, but also, um, um, uh, having autistic folks, um, Actually, so yes, yeah, sorry. So, in the debates online, primarily, it tends to be ABA practitioners showing the research, mm-hmm. and autistic folks showing their perspective with no research to back them up, and the and and the ABA folks are saying, "Sorry, you don't have any research. You're wrong. We're right." And so, I think I think these two studies are hopefully the first of many that will start actually diving into some of those pieces to provide, you know, a valid and, and, and healthy debate on both sides. 
Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I, I should say we're not the, the only ones, you know, there, there's actually some, uh, some great research, uh, qualitative research, for example, by, uh, is it McGill and, and Robinson, I think are yes. the authors. Yes. Yeah, so there's, there's various things out there. Uh, it's not just, just us, but, uh, but yes, I, I hope, I hope so. No, absolutely. And absolutely by no means am I saying it's just you, but it, it, it it's, uh, I think I, I've yet to sort of see much of that shared in the ABA community. Yeah, and you're right. There is often that dynamic of, you know, oh, you just don't don't understand, you know, or, you know, your criticisms are outdated because we no longer use aversives and just not really Mm -hmm. engaging or Mm -hmm. listening deeply and using expertise and authority um, and science, quote unquote, to dismiss people, unfortunately. I agree. So one thing I liked in the very beginning when you when you when we talked here was that you used um, and 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 you used the term in these studies you used the term social validity and now for anyone outside of you know the ABA field and maybe the autism field that's not a term that's really applied mm-hmm. um, you know there's definitely acceptance of acceptance and other terms I think that are used to sort of you know, uh, validate the, you know, the, the appropriateness of, uh, of, of, of whatever might be the result of, 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 of a particular applied research study. Uh, but social validity is a term that came out of ABA. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, I believe it was um, on uh, Montrose Wolf in 78 or something like that, I think. That you sounds right. It. Yeah. I'm, I'm not super familiar with the history of it. It was uh, my, my co-authors, I think, uh, uh, the ones from UC Santa Barbara, um, uh, Rachel Schuck and, and Caitlin Baden wrote that part of the paper. But yeah, yes, yeah, no, exactly. So, uh, so I think it's great that you're using that term because I think you're talking about interventions that are used by the ABA field, and, and so to use that term, I think, is really important. And um, and 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 folks will get it right away. They'll see the social validity of. They'll want to read that paper and do some learning. And essentially, um, you've you've taken you've kind of got uh, two studies here, and and again, uh, the preprints were quite long, so I didn't read through them entirely. But um, the uh, the the one study I think is more specific to. So they're both about what what we call naturalistic developmental behavior interventions, or NDBIs for short. And this is a some some would say it's an offshoot of ABA, but it is ABA. Um, and, uh, you know, early, early, early folks, uh, like Geraldine Dawson and others back in the day kind of brought the, brought these into play as being sort of a, you know, a more, well, you know, to, to take from the, the label, a more natural, uh, you know, approach to teaching, uh, you know, play-based, more interactive, more relationship focused, all the things which we're seeing now in ABA research is suddenly being important, you know, compassion-based ABA is really is is really a trendy thing in the moment right now and and mm-hmm. uh, and other pieces like that. So the f- one study refers to uh, talks about a specific NDBI call which I think is probably the most well known if not tied with uh early star Denver model as the most well known NDBI is called pivotal response treatment and and for again for you ABAers out there the uh, originated by by the Kegels in California um, 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 uh, and, and certainly lots, lots of information on PRT if, if, if folks kind of want to learn about that. And then the second study, I think, maybe is more 
and DBIs in, in, in general? Is that sort of the idea? The second secret word is social. Yeah, they were actually like in terms of the survey, they were they were one study. We just broke it up into the two two parts. But yeah, the uh, the one study is really focused, as you say, on PRT and watching these video clips of PRT. And then the the other study um, was looking more at um, people's thoughts about intervention goals and you know, sort of quantitatively rating statements, like, is this a particular intervention goal, a good one? Is this a good way of doing the intervention of implementing it, that sort of thing? And so it could even be broader than just uh, NDBIs, you know, it's really um, opinions about intervention, especially early intervention in general, in in some cases. Um, And then we just got our a brilliant um, statistical colleague, uh, the another autistic researcher, Zach Williams. He uh, crunched mm. all the numbers on on that. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Zach. Um, so maybe uh, just kind of a, a bit of a breakdown on kind of what you did. So, in particular, obviously, who 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 were the subjects here? Um, uh, number one, and uh, and you know what sort of questions did you ask, and and, and what did you kind of what you find out, mm-hmm. and you can talk about them both, or you can talk about them separately. I'll leave it up to you. Yeah. So yeah, participants. That's a great question because first thing I do when I open up an autism research study is I'm like, so which autistic people is this exactly? Uh, because that's gonna very much inform how what I think is is actually going on who the paper is uh, about. So here we were recruiting autistic adults online um, through social media, through um, people's organizations that we contacted and asked them to disseminate the information. Um, so it, it's going to be um, a sample that you know includes a lot of, of autistic people who are active online in neurodiversity spaces. We also did seek out some organizations where we knew there were autistic people um, who specifically had opinions uh, about ABA. Uh, so there may also be some autistic people who were attracted to the study because uh, they're interested in, in ABA. And in some cases, because they have positive use of it, you know, maybe um, there might be autistic ECBAs um, who are uh, responding as, as well. So it's going to be a, a mix of people with different opinions, for sure, I think. Um, and yeah, should I... Maybe. Before you go on, yeah. I, I was wonder, I was wondering because this is a this is another area that often comes up in in in, in sort of the debate, um, and this is the idea of uh, of diagnosis versus sort of self diagnosis. And so, mm-hmm. did, did were were you recruiting folks that had official diagnoses, or did it matter? Or you know, I can't a hundred percent remember what we did. But I feel mm. like for this sort of thing, it's, um, from my point of view, at least less important. I know that my research that's like this, I've not paid so much attention to to mm. that because it's really more about how people identify themselves, I think, when we're asking about their opinions on mm. these sorts of political issues. Whereas if I was interested in an aspect of, of cognition, or attention or something, then maybe that's where mm-hmm. I start to think, okay, as much as I love self-identifications, um, you know, maybe it would also be good to 
to check that, especially in the transdiagnostic context. Like mm-hmm. if I want to say that you're autistic or you're ADHD, then I, I want to be relatively confident um, that uh, you're you're one or the other or or both, um, and that you know it's not just mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. a case of mistaken diagnosis. So. Mm-hmm. Um, my guess is that we probably were okay with self-identification, um, but I think in this context, it probably made sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have to look well, it up to be 100% and, sure. Right? Well, and it's also going to be difficult in a survey sort of format to kind of, you know, necessarily get all that specific information. So, yeah, there, yeah. there, um, there are, um, online screening things that you can use, Mm. Um, like the AQ10 uh, or the RADS14, but you know, honestly, they're not all that um, great anyway. Um, yeah, I, I'm not going to look at those and be no. entirely confident that they're they're right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so yeah, I don't don't quite remember if we did do some kind of diagnostic um, verificationy um, thing. Um, on here oh yeah okay here we go i found the relevant part of the paper most did say that they had a clinical um diagnosis Uh, a lot of them diagnosed in adulthood um and um you know maybe a a quarter of the sample identified as autistic but didn't have um a a diagnosis Um, most people did score above the like cutoff on the rads 14 so we so again that's not necessarily saying a lot no, no, no. No, good, good. So, so going on now about the study themselves itself. Yeah. Um, so as you're saying, there, there's a couple of different, different studies. And that first one is really um, about uh, what are people's opinions about different sorts of intervention goals? Do people like intervention mm-hmm. goals? That uh, And there's um, several different kinds of, of goals that were sort of sorted uh, in different different ways. So there were some goals that um, are pretty uncontroversial, um, like you know reducing self injury, improving quality of life, uh, promoting independence, toilet training. People are are pretty happy with these uh, with these goals. There's there's not a lot of controversy um, there. Um, and then there's some goals that people really really hated um Mm -hmm. so things like um reducing non-compliance promoting compliance people hated that um picky eating trying to reduce picky eating uh Mm -hmm. trying to increase eye contact suppressing stimming behaviors um also improving sensory tolerance reducing inattention basically you know things that are more sort of normalization that are about Mm -hmm. suppressing people's autistic or neurodivergent behaviors, forcing them to sort of comply with neurotypical directives and neurotypical norms were not appreciated by our survey respondents at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've also got these uh, sort of more social goals, which is is interesting, like improving sort of communication skills and learning, you know, social rules and things. And, and they're you know, there's some variability and people aren't necessarily mm-hmm. as happy with them as they were with our uncontroversial um, goals about things like, uh, you know, safety and quality of life. 
Um, but they're not necessarily opposed to them, them either, as long as they're done right, maybe. So, so maybe it's something that can be okay in principle, but you know, maybe the way it's, it's implemented is, is important, or maybe there's just real variability of, of opinion, probably a bit of both mm. in my humble opinion. Mm. Um, so that's a bit more of a, of a dicing area for people learning. So something to be careful of when we have those kinds of goals, I guess. Mm. Um, we also were asking people about, you know, some more abstract things. Um, like, for example, we have some of these sort of paired statements, like, you know, should we use uh, natural rewards or like external uh, rewards? Should we be like doing the thing of like, oh yeah, you do what I say, you you get um, a like little candy or something. And people mm -hmm. are uh, definitely having um, some firm opinions there. Um, not super happy with this whole uh, external artificial reward business. Mm -hmm. um, Probably the strongest single contrast in the entire paper, and this will also come out in the qual data, um, was that people do not want verbal speech to be prioritized. Um, mm. They want any communication method that is working and effective to be prioritized. You know, mm. they want interventionists to just focus on getting communication to happen um, and not that it has to be through verbal speech. That was a very robust um, effect. Um, mm. Another, um, you know, pretty um, sharp um, contrast here um, is the question of focusing on, you know, trying to understand the perspective of the client and you exercise some empathy and understand what's going on in their head versus focusing on measuring their external behaviors. Uh, people mm -hmm. were very supportive, very supportive of having empathy and understanding the client's perspective. And they were very opposed to focusing only on external behaviors. Mm -hmm. They really wanted that, that empathy, that's that theory of, of mind to be used by interventionists. Um, mm -hmm. So behavior analysis, not just behavior. Um, people also had thoughts about, you know, who's choosing the goals. Um, basically, to the extent that um, mm. the uh, client is themselves able to communicate and participate in that process of determining what the goal should be, they actually want to maximize um, the client's um, involvement there, um, our participants mm -hmm. did. Um, and um, there was there was also um, the question of involving autistic adults as consultants um, when we're mm. working on developing intervention goals, and people were also very supportive of that idea. Uh, so they really wanted an autistic perspective to be, uh, you know, included in the development of intervention goals. Um, yes. Um, what else do we have in here? Um, oh, yes. Um, people like the idea of interventions being delivered um, at home more than in clinical settings. Mm. Um, people um, were generally um, pretty favorable of the idea that we should be you know, focusing on sort of taking a strengths-based perspective. Um, and you know speak you know 
focusing on on strengths in our communication um, with uh, with parents and caregivers. Um, uh, oh, people really liked um, uh, the idea that interventions should be provided by not-for-profit organizations. They did not like a for-profit model for intervention oh, delivery. Interesting. Yeah, there's, uh, I think, a lot of concerns out in the autistic community about um, how a for-profit company could have interests that are not equivalent to those of autistic clients that, for example, you could see, you know, sort of uh, messaging, for example, advertising, like, you know, the horrible autism, so you need to get our services. Um, mm -hmm. that, you know, we're offering on this privatized basis. That might be something that could be encouraged by a privatized model. Um, mm. It would be interesting in follow-up research to get autistic people's perspectives on some of the issues that we have in the ABA field with training and over-reliance on like undergraduates or recent graduates who've gone pretty minimal training as registered behavior technicians and that sort of thing. We did not mm. really probe about that in, in this study, but I would be interested in autistic people's thoughts on, on that topic mm -hmm. because I would not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that more or less um, covers um, the first paper with the intervention um, goals. So did uh, that's great and and uh, most of what they they said I, is not surprising and doesn't really seem like that would be you know too strange um did um so a couple of things did 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 the paper or did the survey have anything in terms of you know why they chose one versus the other yes um so we have a, a lot of, of qualitative um, data and there uh, was actually um, a section in there where we were uh, wondering about people's, uh, you know, reasons for um, picking particular responses. We haven't really analyzed those um, mm. qualitative um, data as of of yet, um, but mm -hmm. I can talk about our, our other qualitative data that we are. Uh, yeah, you know, we figured that that out. Um, we've done our um, analysis, and that's um, the PRT videos. Okay, yeah, please. Yeah, so these are are just short little video clips. Um, so you know, they're um, just showing various different sorts of. Uh, interactions that are in the context of um, a PRT intervention. In some cases, um, uh, you know, there's an interventionist who's, uh, you know, sort of setting up opportunities for the child to communicate and the child's communicating and getting that reinforced. In other cases, um, the uh, interventionist who might in some cases be um, a parent or sort of a professional and that information was not given to the participants. So, uh, they weren't knowing who the, the people were. Um, sometimes it, it would be more that um, the interventionist is holding out for a more correct response uh, and they're not providing that immediate reinforcement. So there's some, some diversity in terms of these 
five video clips, even though they're short, um, in terms of what aspects of the intervention um, they're presenting. And we got some really rich and insightful qualitative feedback um, that actually echoes some of the same themes that were coming through in our quant data. Mm. Um, so, for example, uh, I mentioned that there was this very strong effect in the quantitative data where people wanted to focus on any sort of communication that works and not just verbal speech. And so sure. uh, in the qualitative data, people are identifying that same uh, opinion. Um, and they're going into more detail as to mm. why people are really feeling that, okay, yeah, if the child is communicating and if you understand the child's communication, then you reinforce that and show that you understand and show that you have empathy. And people are actually in many cases concerned about, about harms. Um, if that is, is not done, that it could be damaging relationships that it might be teaching people that their you know communication is is not regarded you know people feeling that's very manipulative to hold out and, and not respond if they do understand um mm -hmm. and people feeling that that yeah you know if somebody um has a, a way to communicate that's what we want it doesn't we don't want to prioritize any particular kind of, of communication we just want people to be able to communicate um and I, I really agree with with that you know i think it's important and good feedback and yeah if we are reinforcing people and saying yeah we we care about um your thoughts um and then it's that seems like it's just good behavioral practice and that's going to make people more likely to want to communicate with us in the future mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um that was a very strong theme that was coming through. Um, also, uh, I mentioned before that people were saying, you know, let's um, in the in the quant data, um, let's understand the child's thoughts and feelings, um, not just focus on external behaviors. And it was interesting to see in our qualitative data when people are looking at the video clips. Very often, they were coming up with hypotheses as to what the child is feeling or thinking, you know, are they having some sort of sensory experience that's, that's atypical? Mm. Um, uh, you know, what, what is going on in, in their heads um, that might be uh, causing the behaviors that, that we're seeing? So the fact that so many people were coming up with these sorts of hypotheses as to what's going on in the child's brain, that kind of suggested to us exactly what was said in the quant data, that, yeah, these are people who think that we should be paying attention to what children think. That's clearly important to how people are evaluating video clips uh, and whether or not they think it's uh, appropriate. Hmm. Uh, another thing, um, of course, you know, these naturalistic uh, developmental interventions there supposed to be um, relatively more child-led. Um, they're supposed mm -hmm. to be encouraging um, choice and um, in, as opposed to that more traditional compliance-based um, model. And um, our participants um, were definitely on board with the idea that um, we want to be promoting young children's self-determination and offering choices and offering people opportunities to uh, become more or autonomous, to be, you know, feeling comfortable to make choices for themselves, to have their own motivation. Um, and sometimes people were highlighting cases where it seemed like 
um, children were making choices and they were engaged in activities and choosing to be involved in that. Um, that being said, um, there were also cases where people were feeling that not enough was being done in that way. Um, you know, sometimes people were thinking, oh, yeah, these these interventionists, they're, you know, butting in too much on what the children are, are doing and constantly setting up these opportunities where the child has to give some kind of response to keep on doing what they're they're doing. Or hmm. it seems like the adult is trying to manipulate or coerce the child into doing hmm. something that the adult wants to do, not what the child wants to do. Hmm. Um, so it did seem like... Um, Participants thought this was a good idea, principle, this following the child's lead, but we probably need to do more um, to reach the level to which autistic adults would, um, you know, prefer that to be the case. And it's a tricky issue because neurotypical kids, you know, they don't always consent to things. Sometimes they have to do things they don't want to do, but um, certainly, um, it seems like all else being equal, if we can set up opportunities for people to be having that sort of self-determination and making those choices, that that's something that's important for the social validity of the intervention. Mm. You know, I haven't taken a deep dive into sort of, the, and I know there is some, and I, and I do want to, uh, into the sort of the research on, you know, social validity, you know, as 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 a construct and, and, and sort of the kind of different ways of going about it. But what I've seen sort of anecdotally is um, that social validity measures in, at least either in, in interventions. So they tend to be sort of, you know, like a, you know, sort of a short, you know, exit survey or consumer satisfaction survey or something like that. Or, and then in a study, they, they tend to be, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a, a, a 10 or 15 sort of question with a Likert scale and, and, uh, and, and, and that's about it. And that, and, and then, and then they report, you know, participants rated the social validity, uh, you know, average of 4.7 out of five, you know, and, um, and makes it sound really, really good. It's, it sounds like, and, and, and again, I'm not implying maybe that you're the first to do this because I know there's a, a lot of research on social validity happening right now. And, and, and there's, I think there's textbooks on social validity. Um, um, but it really seems like the way you and your, and, and your team kind of approach this, you know, is, is, is a much more comprehensive and, and probably giving a, a much better picture of sort of the true measure of people's perspectives of interventions it, it's um i'm not really a question here just maybe more of a compliment i guess um uh but but is, is that something you is that something you were thinking about sort of when you designed the study or the third secret word is response uh, yeah i mean these are i'm mean, definitely you know Whenever you're doing a study, you always want to fill gaps in prior work. A lot of the prior work is focused on particular perspectives, not necessarily those of autistic people, but maybe of, mm -hmm. of uh, parents um, who are often yes. non-autistic, of course. Um, yes. And as you say, you know, some of the prior research has assessed social validity in relatively, um, you, you know, um, narrow ways. And 
we are definitely not saying that this is comprehensive, what we've done. Um, uh, there's a few other qualitative findings that I didn't get to yet, but even after mm. we add those in, um, it's still going to be relatively uh, specific, you know, that we're only just mentioning um, a few things, you know, in certain video clips, some very basic, you know, um, intervention goals. There is so much more that could still be done to really dive deeply into every aspect of this intervention and see, yeah, what do people think of it? Um, so, uh, yeah, thank you for the compliment. And yeah, I hope that we're moving things forward, but I think there's still so much more work to be done in this area. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think it's, it is somewhat, well, I, I was going to say it's disappointing, but it's, but then I realized several, a couple of the co-authors are, are, you know, practitioners in this area so i was going to say it's disappointing that it's a, that, that a person an individual outside of aba is doing maybe better social validity research than we are doing internally but it does but i but i had forgotten that you mentioned that you actually do have you know actual practitioners on your team so this is within aba too yes yes it is um you you mentioned um earlier um the origins of prt and yes um rachel and caitlin are working at that um, very center with the people who mm. develop PRT, um, Perfect. among other colleagues. So, yeah, um, it's sometimes disheartening to see how so many people in the mainstream ABA world are still doing so little on these issues. Like I know that at some big behavior analysis conferences, we see things like presentations from Judge Rodenberg Center and stuff. Um, and, and yeah, that, that can be really frustrating, but I do want mm -hmm. to uh, acknowledge that, yeah, there's a lot of, of people, some autistic or otherwise neurodivergent and some neurotypical allies who are in this field um, and who really do understand the need to uh, reform things to listen to the community, to validate um, harms that have been experienced, and um, to really take meaningful action um, to make things things better. And so uh, I am very grateful to all of those um, people who are doing that important work. Well, and I think they will be, and I am equally grateful that you and your team are doing this work. It, it, it's it's been a long time coming that, uh, and so, and I hope, I hope this spurs more of it. What, um, just as we kind of wrap up here, um, what, uh, what are you working on these days? What are, what are the, your, 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 your big projects? Well, I'll, I'll just say maybe just a couple more things about the paper. Um, just to, oh, please, just yeah, to mention, please. yeah. Another Absolutely. thing that, yeah. that people mentioned, um, is sometimes they were feeling like the, there wasn't enough space being offered um, that sometimes um, the interventionist was really kind of, you know, being a bit overwhelming, a bit overly invasive almost um, right. of the client space, um, which was, was interesting. So sometimes people you know, wanted a bit more, more distance. Um, right. And that, and that's interesting. You know, one of my, um, one of the undergrads, um, who just did a in, in the lab that I'm from, just did an honors thesis showing that um, you know, autistic people 
um, even if they're not showing as much explicit attention to somebody's face, um, they can still pick up directional cues in terms of eye gaze. Sure. There's a recent study that just got published showing like, hey, we can do joint attention without looking at people's faces. Um, so there's, there's ways that you can have this sort of social engagement without being overly, mm-hmm. you know, um, in, what's the overbearing was a term that was used mm-hmm. by some of our participants. I think it's a good one. Um, so, so that was something that was, I thought quite interesting that, that came out of uh, our qualitative uh, analysis. Um, and, and yeah, otherwise I think they're mostly things I already um, touched um, on, you know, some people just felt that, um, uh, you know, behavior interventions are uh, inherently too manipulative too too harmful too much you know sort of uh denial of of reinforcement and things like that but you know i i do hope that um uh through all the good work we were just talking about that we can um change that um and yeah of course people were talking about you know children's affect and uh you know making sure that that be positive and not negative which i'm sure we can all agree we want children to be happy so so yes it would be it would be interesting to know a couple of things that I'm, I'm not looking for to answer these, uh, but one would be, you know, and, and maybe even someone like Rachel will be able to speak to this down the road, you know, with will, 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 will Kegel and company make changes to the PRT as a result of this? I'd, I'd be interested to know. Um, uh, and then two, you know, I'd also be interested to, and this is sort of somewhat separate, but to, Autistic perspectives and parent perspectives are often quite different, and um, and 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 I think there's still a lot of parents, you know, especially those that aren't familiar with neurodiversity and aren't familiar with you know autism in any way, and 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 and, and are, are suddenly informed the diagnosis that are still, you know, sort of you know looking for neurotypical, looking to achieve these neurotypical goals like eye contact and compliance and all these sorts of things. Um, and they're going to continue to ask for those things um, mm-hmm. as they come to get services. And, you know, and, and so and, and I'm not really, you know, uh, asking anything in particular, but it's more I, I just think some work needs to be done around, you know, education for parents and, and, and other folks to sort of understand that as well. These shouldn't be goals because a lot of those goals are parent informed. They're not necessarily, you know, PRT practitioner informed. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah that, it's a tricky, tricky issue. And, um, and yeah, I think as you say, education, and as I was saying earlier, sort of dialogue and engagement, uh, I think those are absolutely the answers. Um, I really look especially to autistic parents. I mean, I know the autistic parents have mm. uh, a lot on their plates already because mm-hmm. they have the caregiving and they have whatever disabling challenges they themselves are experiencing. And I don't want to saddle them with additional um, uncompensated labor, but you know, maybe there are ways that we can draw on, on those people. Um, mm. And, you know, cause they, they get it. They get, the parent perspective, but they also uh, often have ideas and values that are very much more similar to those of the autistic community more generally. I saw that, for example, in another study I haven't published yet, uh, where we were asking 
uh, parents um, and autistic people uh, the question, you know, who should be kind of in charge, the autistic kid, um, to the extent that they're developmentally ready and able to communicate and so on, or the parent. And I thought, oh, well, the autistic parents are going to be squarely in the middle on that, right? And no, actually, they were inclined generally more towards the autistic people's side of letting the autistic kid be in charge to a greater extent. Um, They were still a bit closer to the parent, uh, non-autistic parent view, but they were more closer to the autistic yeah, yeah. non-parent view, which I was surprised by. So I think there's there's a lot um, there. And then mm. as we were saying earlier, you know, those conversations about, you know, how, changing the way that we communicate about the diagnosis, changing the way that we communicate about other things, bringing autistic mm. people in as consultants, which again, mm. people in the study thought was a great idea. You know, mm-hmm. having that sort of, of community involvement, um, setting up more opportunities for dialogue and intergroup contact, I really feel that that could help to resolve a lot of um, the conflicts and controversies that are currently also common in our community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cool. Really looking forward to seeing some of that work come out because uh, definitely had questions about all of those things. So I'm glad, I'm really, I'm really glad that uh, you're, you're 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 addressing a lot of these really big questions and and big really large largely debated areas that up until recently did not have a lot of research supporting either way and was all just sort of opinion and so it's nice to get some of the stuff on paper with some you know some good analyses and whatnot so that's re- that's really great yeah, yeah well thank you um i hope it uh you know has the the positive in- impacts um that, that yeah we're hoping for yeah, i used hope twice yeah. there but whatever i'm no <laughs> forgiven um and b- before i kind of cut you off as you were explaining the, the rest of the the study uh results um uh i was asking sort of uh you know what 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 are you what are you working on next ah right thank you for the yeah. reminder um yeah so i mentioned uh, a few times findings from this uh you know study I'm, I'm working on now about people's opinions on you know what the neurodiversity movement is what do they think about intervention goals not just in terms of early intervention but it's a bit broader um you know do they think that things are society's fault do they think that it's like the person's fault quote unquote um so we've collected all those data we meaning myself various um, uh, colleagues and collaborators, Stephen Cap uh, in, in the UK, Kristen Gillespie Lynch, um, and Sari Shepchuk Hill, and Ava Gerba, and uh, Elizabeth Kilogon, and um, also Lynette Hirsch, who's a, an honor student um, in the lab that I'm working in with Susan Rivera. So we're all involved in this. Uh, it's a big uh, study. We've got qualitative mm. data from like 500 people, so that's a lot of qualitative oh. coding. Um, that we're working on now, but we've mostly finished our quant analyses there. And, you know, the results, I think, show interesting nuance in what people in the community think. And um, I already did, again, mention some findings there. And then my main focus, though, is still that sensory attention thing, that understanding Mm. the neurodivergent experience bit that I mentioned earlier. So I'm very interested now in hyper-focus and Mm. uh, inattention, which um, you may know, um, from your ties to the ADHD world, uh, mm-hmm. that they come up um, in ADHD as well as autism. That you've got, you know, hyper focus on 
things that are inherently interesting, and then, mm-hmm. you know, more attention capture and distraction um, uh, sometimes in, in other contexts. And we see that mm-hmm. same pattern in autism, um, yeah. but yeah. differently. So I'm interested in exploring those sort of two aspects of atypical attention that we're seeing there and really trying to characterize um, what is going on in terms of attention. And, you know, is it also, you know, how is it similar or different in autism and ADHD? And how does that connect to the sensory experiences that we have? Because, you know, it, it, it seems like they're very related. Um, I felt super validated the other day when I saw this study about um, misophonia, those sort of uh, mm. reactions of extreme frustration when there's a really annoying sound. Like if you yep. uh, have ever experienced um, this intense aggravation when somebody is chewing obnoxiously, that's the misophonia. And this study was actually saying that one of the most um, use strategies most preferred by participants in this uh, cognitive behavior therapy intervention for misophonia was attention, um, sort of trying to f- figure out how to reallocate their attention away from the thing. And mm. this was super validating for me because I f- feel like I've got a sort of personal gut feeling understanding of how attention relates to my sensory experiences and causes a lot of the atypical ones. And I have sort of hacks for how I can reorient my attention and feel more in control mm. of my attention and that that helps me. It was good to see that that is helping somebody else. And that makes me feel mm. more confident that understanding the way that attention informs these sensory experiences could hopefully, mm. you know, help other people understand what is going on when they have all these weird sensory experiences, be able to communicate those more successfully and be able to, um, uh, you know, understand, okay, so this could maybe lead to some strategies for how I can deal with this, assuming that we mm-hmm. can, of course, just reform society and get rid of all the horrible, annoying sensory stimuli, which is my preferred option. But. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, let's get rid of all the noise. That'd be the greatest. Uh, that's wonderful. Wonderful. I'm really looking forward to, to seeing some of your work and, uh, and definitely we'll be following it going forward. Um, any, any sort of last comments for the audience before we wrap up? I don't think so. Um, yeah, just thanks again for inviting me and for a really interesting conversation. Wonderful. I, I enjoyed it so much as well. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Cheers.